Faith Talk 570 WTBN Pinellas Park. Online at Let's Talk Faith.com. A service of the same portions of this hour have been pre recorded for broadcast at this time. Odyssey. The following program was pre recorded for broadcast at this time. Up next is Verse by Verse, sponsored by Verse by Verse Ministries. We are not the children of God, and we are not bound to the Mosaic law. The law was for Israel. There are principles of the law for us, but the law specifically is to Israel. But there are still some very important timeless truths and principles of obedience to God's word that demand our attention, that flow out of of this passage, out of this chapter. Nehemiah 10 reveals several key areas of our lives that we need to change. And let me put it this way. The areas that we need to change flow out of a revival. This is the result of a revival. When revival comes, so does change. It's like lightning and thunder. When you see the bright flash, the boom is not long in coming. Hello and welcome to Verse by Verse, a radio Bible class led by Pastor Steve Kreloff of Lakeside Community Chapel in Clearwater, Florida. We've been learning about the great revival that happened in Jerusalem after the Jewish people returned from the Babylonian captivity. Today, Pastor Steve begins his concluding message in this series. Today and in the following two sessions, we'll examine some of the changes in our lives that we'll choose to make when our love for God is renewed. We'll see how the story of what happened in Nehemiah's day relates to our 21st century condition. Now here's Pastor Steve. The English dictionary defines the word change as this. This is found in an English dictionary, it says to be or cause to become different. That, that is to say that if there are some things now that are different than in your life than they used to be, then you've changed. That is the definition of change. There's a difference in your life. Now, one of the more obvious areas of change in our lives is in the physical realm. Uh, as we get older, and some clever person has a, uh, given us a suggested list for how you know uh, you're getting older, how, if there are certain changes in your life. For example, he said, you know you're growing older when everything hurts, and what doesn't hurt doesn't work. He said, you know you're growing older when your little black book contains only names ending in M.D., You know you're growing older when you finally reach the top of the ladder and you find it leaning against the wrong wall. I'm not sure what that means, but that's a suggested thing to look for. You know you're growing older, he said, when you look forward to a dull evening. I can relate. You know you're growing older when you sit in a rocking chair and you can't get it going. That's a sure sign. He said, you know you're growing older when your knees buckle and your belt will not. You know you're growing older when your back goes out more than you do. You know you're growing older when the little gray-haired lady you help across the street is your wife. He wrote that. And and here's one that I take personal exception to. You know you're growing older when you see a pretty girl go by and your pacemaker makes the garage door go up. That one personally insults me, but... We, uh, we know that there are physical changes taking place in our lives, and for you young people who uh, don't even think that's funny, you will. 
You'll think all of these things are funny and sad at the same time. It will happen to you. But there are physical changes that occur in our lives, uh, whether we want them to or not. They just happen. That's just a part of of life. Uh, But the Bible teaches that there are spiritual changes that ought to take place. Not, and these things don't take place automatically. These things are choices that we make. There are, there are changes in our lives that we're called to make, differences uh, that, that happen to us because we make a choice to change so that we are obedient to God's word. In other words, there are changes that ought to be occurring in our lives out of loyalty to the Lord and his word. And one of the places in Scripture... That clearly spells out the changes that God's people are to make is Nehemiah chapters 9 and 10. So I'd like you to open to Nehemiah. We've been studying this book for some time. And uh, in these two chapters, we're, uh, we're given truths about change. Now, there's a pattern here. The chapters, as I see them, deal with revival. And revival, as we've said a number of times, is not an evangelistic crusade. Revival... Uh, is what God does in our life as he brings us back to him. When we've gotten off track in our lives, God brings us back to the call revival. It can only take place in a believer's life because you have to have life there in order to revive that life. And so it simply means a new beginning. And also, revival is not something that takes place even necessarily in a meeting. Uh, it's not something necessarily sweeps a country. It's just, it could do that, but it's the still small voice of the Spirit of God working in our lives, convicting us of sin, and bringing us back to where we should be spiritually. Now, these two chapters are really very, very basic, and and there's a pattern about revival. Actually, it begins in chapter 8. The pattern is this. In Nehemiah's day, the Jewish people, after hearing the Word of God and understanding the Word of God in chapter 8, they moved on in chapter 9 to confess their sin because the Word of God revealed to them where they had blown it. And so after hearing and understanding, in chapter 9, they confess their sin. And in chapter 10, they agree in writing to make certain changes in obedience and conformity to the law of Moses. Now, in chapter 9, verse 38, uh, this is the key to chapter 10, by the way. In verse 38, they say this. Now, because of all of this, we are making an agreement in writing. And on the sealed document are the names of our leaders, our Levites, and our priests. So not only did they say, hey, we're going to make changes, uh, they wrote it out. There was some accountability. They made a covenant, if you will, to obey the covenant. They made an agreement, a covenant to obey the old covenant, which is the Mosaic law. Why? Because they had not been obedient up to this point. And now they're saying, we're serious about this. We're going to put it in writing. Nehemiah's name heads the list in chapter 10. We read about this. Community leaders, uh, other people, they, they said, we are now going to make some specific changes. Now, we are not the children of God. And we are not bound to the Mosaic law. The law was for Israel. There are principles of the law for us, but the law specifically is to Israel. But there are still some very important timeless truths and principles of obedience to God's word that demand our attention, that flow out of of this passage, out of this chapter. Nehemiah 10 reveals several key areas of our lives that we need to change. And let me put it this way. The areas that we need to change flow out of a revival. This is the result of a revival. There are areas that always change when we get right with God. Now, there are other areas that change. This is not an exhaustive list, but there are certain key areas that change 
when God does a work in your heart and revives your heart. Why? Because these are the areas that are most out of whack when we're not walking with the Lord. Do you understand what I mean? These are the areas that when you're not walking with with the Lord, uh, they're they're out of tune. They're not right. And so when God revives your heart, uh, these areas always come back to being what what God wants them to be. Three areas of change as a result of a revival. Now, we looked last week at the first area, and I just want to touch upon it this week. First of all, the first area of change as a result of revival, you know that God is reviving your heart when there's a change in your marriage, especially purity in marriage. Notice verse 30. And that we will not, chapter 10, verse 30, we will not give our daughters to the peoples of the land or take their daughters for our sons. Now they're saying, we're going to put in writing a commitment to purity in marriage. And why, as as we'll see later on in this book, because they were not obedient in this area. They were intermarrying. And the thing, as I pointed out last week, has nothing to do racially. It has to do with believers marrying unbelievers. It's a spiritual issue. But there's a commitment to purity in the marriage. And what we said last week, and it's so important that that you really should get the tape if you were not here last week, especially the things that we had to say towards the end. Never marry outside of Jesus Christ. Never marry a person who doesn't know Jesus Christ. And not simply a person who says, yeah, when I was 10 years old, I prayed a prayer. And, and, and uh, yeah, I asked Jesus into my life and I've been baptized. Yeah, but his life or her life has never evidenced that. You want to marry someone and look for somebody who not only professes faith in Christ, but you don't have to have any doubts whether they know the Lord. Let me put it this way. If you wonder if they know Christ, don't marry them. If you have any questions whether they know Christ, don't marry them. We must always marry those who know Jesus Christ. A commitment not only of parents, but a commitment of their children. And last week I stressed the responsibility of young people to look only for a Christian partner. That is what the Word of God says. Don't be unequally yoked with unbelievers. By the way, that passage in 2 Corinthians is not talking only about marriage. It's talking about any kind of union. It's talking about a business partnership as well, any kind of religious affiliation, but it certainly applies to marriage because that is a uh, a foundational uh, key relationship and partnership. But uh, I want to stress for a few minutes that the burden is really upon parents. If you look at verse 30, you'll see that the parents said, we'll not give our daughters to the peoples of the land or take their daughters for our sons. That is, we will not... Uh, intermarry as as Jews, we will not marry pagans and we'll not allow our children to do this. And of course, back in, in those times, the, the parents arranged the marriage. It's a little different, obviously, today. That was a cultural thing. But, but the truth is there that the burden is also upon parents. And uh, we didn't get to this last week, but I wanted to show you an illustration of this. In Genesis chapter 24, the story of Abraham. Abraham's getting old. And uh, he wants to make sure that his uh, beloved son, Isaac, has a wife who uh, is part of the, the spiritual heritage, who would be a believer, who would not be a Canaanite. And the Canaanites were a wicked people. That's why God said, kill them all. It was a merciful thing that God said to do. Kill them all because they're a plague on the face of this, this earth. But in Genesis chapter 24... We read this story, beginning in verse 1. Now Abraham was old, advanced in age, and the Lord had blessed Abraham in every way. And Abraham said to his servant, the oldest of his household, 
who had charge of all that he owned, please place your hand under my thigh. Now that was the way they would, they would swear, they would take an oath. And I will make you swear by the Lord, the God of heaven and the God of earth, that you shall not take a wife from my son, from the daughters of the Canaanites among whom I live, but you shall go to my country, to my relatives, and take a wife from my son Isaac. Now we read that and we say, isn't that nice? Isn't that interesting? It's more than interesting. This man... Eliezer, I think of Damascus, his name was, Eliezer had to travel over 400 miles away to make sure that he got a wife that was the right one, the appropriate one, the spiritually minded one for Abraham's son, Isaac. You see, even Abraham, godly man that he was, was concerned that his son would not marry a pagan. Now, parents, may I suggest a few things to you that that would be practical, I think, and helpful First of all, even if your children are young, no matter what age they are, even if you have a child who's an infant, it's never too soon, too early to start praying for their future marriage partner. Do you do that? Start praying for the person that God has for your children to marry. Because somewhere out there, in some part of the world, God has a little boy or a little girl for your child as a marriage partner. Start praying for them now. What are you praying for? Character development, godliness, a commitment to purity that they'll keep themselves sexually pure, as well as obviously you pray for your own children. But start praying for the person God has for your, for your child. Then secondly, talk to your child about the importance of marrying a Christian. So that when age 18, 19, 20 rolls around, it's not something that they think, well, you never said this before. No, you, you brainwash them in the proper sense before. Brainwashing in the sense that you're cleaning their mind of the filth of this world with the washing of the Word of God. Because the Word of God teaches this. So tell them, uh, ever since they're young, I mean, pray with them for the person uh, God has for them. Talk to them about the importance of marrying, marrying a Christian. Also, thirdly, tell them what to look for. What do you look for in a spouse? What, what qualities should a young lady look for in a young man? What qualities should a young man look for in a young lady? What is it? They shouldn't just be on their own. You ought to instruct them in these things. What are they looking for? What are some of the warning signs that would say, uh, avoid that person. Don't even be interested in that person. He or she doesn't speak to you properly. Uh, they, don't, uh, uh, they, they don't have much of a commitment to Christ. They don't want to come to church on Sunday. They always make excuses. I mean, some of those things, just off the top of my head. Uh, be training your children. And then finally, uh, forbid them to date non-Christians. Because as I said last week, when you reach a certain age... Uh, every, every date is a potential spouse. Every date. So why would you date a non-Christian? Well, uh, you know, I'll, I'll lead them to the Lord. No, let somebody else lead them to the Lord. You just pray for that person. Because if you play with fire, you are going to get burned. So don't, it's not even an option. Don't let them, don't let them date a non-Christian. And uh, men, if, if you want my advice, which you're going to get it whether you want it or not, because I've got the floor. But if you want my advice, one nice thing to do for your daughters is say, look, I'm going to make it easy for you. Any young man who asks you out on a date has to ask me. Just as simple as that. And uh, so you be the bad guy if you have to say, I don't think so. Or you be the good guy if you say, I think so. 
he'll know to, uh, to treat your daughter well because there's a father he's going to answer to. And, and things like that. So, so a few things for you to write down and uh, put into to practice. That is, and we really dealt with this last week. We're just reviewing and taking it a step further. But that's the first area of change as a result of, re, of a revival. The second area of change is not only marital purity, but business practices. Business practices. Notice verse 31. As for the peoples of the land... They're promising. This is what they're promising in writing. As for the people of the land who bring wares or any grain on the Sabbath day to sell, we will not buy from them on the Sabbath or on a holy day. And we will forego the crops, the seventh year, and the exaction of every debt. Now, what is this talking about? The Jewish people agree that they will no longer conduct business with their Gentile neighbors on the Sabbath day. That is Saturday, not Sunday. The Sabbath was Saturday. In fact, it still is Saturday. Uh, they would observe also other rules connected with the Sabbath law. Now, I want to explain what's going on here, and then we'll discuss how it applies to us. Back in the law of Moses, back in the Ten Commandments, in fact, God told the Jewish people to remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. That's found in Exodus chapter 20, verse 8. The Sabbath was to be a day of rest and no work. In fact, if you go to Israel today, it basically is that. The shops, everything, uh, well, I shouldn't say everything, most things closed down on Saturday, well, from Friday sundown to Saturday sundown, then the shops open up after that. But uh, in fact, they even have in Israel today a Sabbath elevator. If you're in a hotel on the Sabbath, be careful that you don't go on the Sabbath elevator. What does that mean? It means that every button is going to be pressed for you. It's automatic. So what might normally take two minutes on the ride, you'll be there for 30 minutes because it's going to stop at every floor. So you don't have to do any work pushing the button. No, that's what they have. But I didn't make that up. That's, that's true. Now, the Sabbath was to be a day of rest, no work, even as God rested from creation on the seventh day. Now, it's important to keep in mind that the Sabbath observance, observance was strictly a Jewish thing. It was not for Gentiles. Never, never was. It, it wasn't practiced by the Gentiles. It wasn't given to the Gentiles. The Gentiles did business as usual on the seventh day. They maybe had another day where they took off, but on the seventh day they did business. Therefore, in Nehemiah's day, there were many who were doing business with the Gentiles on that day. Uh, it says in verse 31, as the, for the peoples of the land we, uh, who bring wares or any grain on the Sabbath day, they were probably selling to the merchants at a good price, who the merchants in turn would sell to the people on other days. And so there were really probably some very good bargains going on there. And so they were practicing business on the seventh day. Therefore, uh, this, was a, this was a problem. They, they needed the business. Remember, times were poor economically. Times were poor. It's an agricultural society. Uh, they had very difficult times, and uh, it, it seemed such an unwise business decision, financial decision, to, uh, to not do business with the Gentiles on the seventh day. They could get some real good buys. And, uh, and so that's what's going on. They make an agreement that even if it costs us, even if it hurts us, even if it means losing money, not getting the best deal, on a weekly basis, the Jewish people say, we're not going to conduct business with the Gentiles. We're going, in other words, to honor the Lord. Even if we have to cut our profits, we're going to honor the Lord on Saturday. Uh, we're closed for business. We're not doing anything. Shops closed. We'll open up tomorrow. That's basically what's going on here. But Sabbath observances, and you may not realize this, Sabbath observances went beyond the weekly Saturday rest. 
far more than that. Notice the end of verse 31. It said, we will forego the crops the seventh year and the exaction of every debt. Now, what's this talking about? The law also commanded the Jewish people not only to, for them to rest on Saturday, but every seven years, the land, agricultural society, the land was to be idle. The land was to get its rest. No work on the land for se- uh, every seven years. For one year, let it rest so that it might restore itself, which is a pretty, pretty smart principle here. Now, this would have been and was a tremendous step of faith. They weren't doing it. That's why they agreed to do this. But originally, it was to be a great step of faith because uh, since they lived off of the land, they had to trust God that he would provide uh, economically, agriculturally, before the seventh year of, of rest. He'd have to provide two years worth of food for them to live off of because that one year they didn't work the land. Now, if you're a farmer, that's really rough. If you live off of your farm and your farm doesn't get used for a year, that's kind of hard. So they'd have to trust the Lord. Economically, it would be hard. And notice also, uh, every seventh year they were to cancel debts. Now, there are, Bible teachers are divided on this. Some say that every seven years they just canceled it. If you owe me anything, you don't owe me, you don't owe me anything. Now, others say, and I tend to think that this was, the, this was the intent of the law, that it was simply suspended for the seventh year. It was suspended because in the seventh year, times would be hard, and therefore all debts were, were temporarily suspended. Consequently, it was, it was because of the, the, uh, the lean year that they were going through with their farms because the, the debtor wouldn't, at that point, that year, have the means to repay the debt. And uh, it, my interpretation, that it probably meant that the loan would still have to be repaid, but not that year. Now, this was not being observed. This was all part of the Sabbath truth, and this was not being observed. In fact, if you look back a couple of books to Second Chronicles chapter 36, many Christians don't realize this, and uh, when you do, it'll be an eye-opener for you. In Second Chronicles, you go back Ezra and then, and then Second Chronicles. In Second Chronicles chapter 36, verse 21, speaking about the captivity, show you how serious this was, the captivity. Verse 21, to fulfill the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah until the land had enjoyed its Sabbath. Speaking about the captivity, all the days of its desolation, it kept Sabbath until 70 years were complete. Now, what what is that saying? Jeremiah said in Jeremiah 29, verse 10, not only are the Jewish people going into captivity to Babylon and then Persia, but they're going to be in captivity for 70 years. Now, why 70 years? Well, what this is saying is the 70 years, and this is only one reason they went into captivity. There are many others, but one reason the Jewish people went into captivity was to give the land 70 years of rest. Why 70 years? Each year representing seven years of Sabbath neglect, or about uh, 490, 500 years. So for about 500 years, they had neglected the Sabbath rule of letting the land lie idle. And God said, I will enforce the, the a Sabbath rest for the land. If you won't give it to, them, to the land, I will. So that's why it was 70 years. So you understand that for 500 years, they were not observing the Sabbath like they should have been. So now that we understand that the Jewish people were committed in Nehemiah chapter 10 to observe the Sabbath weekly and every seven years, how's this relevant to us? 
Well, it's not about doing business on Sunday or even Saturday, but we'll have to wait till our next class to get the details because, well, we're almost out of time today. Thanks for tuning in to Verse by Verse with Pastor Steve Kreloff of Lakeside Community Chapel in Clearwater, Florida. Find out all about Lakeside at their website, lakesidechapel.com. Or if you're needing service times, you can call the office at 727-441-1714. That's 727-441-1714 or go online to lakesidechapel.com. As I said earlier, we're nearing the conclusion of this series on the characteristics of a biblical revival. If you're just joining us, you can get caught up by going to the Message Archive page on our website, versebyverseradio.org. While you're there, if you'd like to help support this ministry, you can take advantage of our secure and convenient giving page. We need generous supporters like you in order to help pay the costs of airtime and the other expenses involved with producing these daily broadcasts. So thank you for your gifts and for your prayers. The web address, again, is versebyverseradio.org. This is Jerry Peterson. W. Graham Scroggie said, There are two ways a Christian can view his money. How much of my money shall I use for God? Or how?